cancer will accumulate thousands of somatic mutations throughout its natural history, modern DNA sequencing technologies have made complete genomic characterization possible at an unprecedented scale, leading to wide-ranging insights into cancer biology. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Peter Campbell, Head of Cancer, Aging, and Somatic Mutation, Senior Group Leader, and Joint Head of the Cancer Genome Project at the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute, and a practicing hematologist at Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge in the United Kingdom. Dr. Campbell has co-authored a Frontiers in Medicine article on genome sequencing during a patient's journey through cancer. Dr. Campbell, as an introduction, can you explain the basic concept behind next-generation sequencing and how that relates to cancer? Next-generation sequencing is the ability to use modern sequencing technologies to sequence the entire genome of a cancer. So the genome consists of six billion bases of DNA, and the major advance in sequencing technologies now allows us to analyze every single one of those bases using modern sequencing technologies. What we can do when we sequence a cancer then is to sequence both DNA that derives from the tumor cells and DNA that derives from normal cells from the same individual. And then essentially we can perform the subtraction and identify which are the changes in the DNA that are specific to the cancer and not found in that person's normal cells. And then typically what we find when we sequence a cancer is that the cancer will have anywhere from a few thousand to tens to hundreds of thousands of genetic changes that are specific to the cancer. And in amongst those changes are the ones that are responsible for driving that cancer's biology. You talk in your article about mutational signatures. Can you explain those and how they help with cancer therapy? What we find when we sequence a person's cancer is that the tumor has accumulated genetic changes as the person has gone through life. Many of those genetic changes occur from a variety of different mutational processes, things that generate those mutations. So there are things that happen when our cells copy their genome as they divide, and there are errors that occur, just like typos when you're typing on your computer. But also there are other things which can introduce mutations, things like sun exposure, ultraviolet light can cause damage to DNA and skin cells. Uh, Cigarette smoking can introduce damage to DNA and lung cells. And the particular types of damage that these processes cause are very distinctive. They're determined by the chemistry of the chemicals in, say, cigarette smoke and the chemistry of the DNA. And therefore, they leave very distinctive signatures in the genome. And because we see thousands of mutations in a cancer genome, we get a very good read of what those signatures are. Now, it turns out when we look across hundreds to thousands of cancers that actually we can tell from the pattern of mutations what the kind of mutational exposures that that person has had. So if you give me a lung cancer, I can tell you whether that person smoked or was a non-smoker and just from the patterns of mutations in the genome. But what we're finding as we do more and more of these is that there are a range of different processes that can cause mutations. And these give us clues both as to what potential lifestyle exposures might contribute mutations to a cancer genome, and also what defects in DNA repair might be active in those cancers. And both of those can give us clues. Obviously, if we can identify lifestyle factors that contribute to people's cancers, then we can think about intervening in a sort of public health way to reduce those exposures or prevent them. Similarly, if we can find the types of signatures that are associated with defective 
DNA repair, then we can imagine trying to identify therapeutic agents which target the kind of vulnerabilities that losing DNA repair can confer on the cancer cells. And so there are some interesting examples of therapies which are specifically targeting cancer cells that have lost particular DNA repair pathways, such as PARP inhibitors being used for ovarian and breast cancers with defective um, homologous recombination. Backing up a step in the natural history of the disease and looking at screening, the aim of cancer screening is to identify the disease in its early stages. Is there a role for genome sequencing in that early detection of cancer? Yes, I think there is a role. The The interesting thing about cancer screening is that Many cancer screening programs, for example, using um, imaging such as CT scans or other tests, mammography and so on, they identify a lot of lesions that are much earlier. Of course, that's what they're intended to do. They also identify a lot of lesions that are early that will never progress to kill the patient uh, in their natural lifespan. What we think it may be feasible to do is to use genome sequencing to study the DNA of these lesions and potentially predict which of the lesions are the ones that we need to be worrying about. In other words, if we find a small carcinoma in situ in an organ system, potentially you know, we could use genome sequencing to say this carcinoma in situ is very likely to progress to an invasive and ultimately lethal cancer, and this one looks pretty benign at the moment. We can sit and watch it and see what happens over time. And these are sort of proof of principle studies at the moment that you can begin to see differences between those that ultimately progress and those that don't. Um, we obviously need them in much larger numbers, but it does raise the potential that we could use these technologies to reduce the risk of over-treatment and target our treatments that the patient's most likely to benefit from intervention early. Why do you think that precision cancer treatment using genetics has, so far at any rate, had only limited success? It is true that precision medicine at the moment is in its early days. Um, I mean, you know, the, the sort of concept that we might sequence someone's cancer genome and essentially have a lookup table that says if you have this genetic change, you should get this particular drug and then pull it off the shelf and give it to the person was probably always a bit naive. Essentially, I think there's a lot of complexity in cancer genomes. So we talk about, for example, a BRAF mutant melanoma, but of course, there are many other changes in that melanoma beyond the BRAF mutation, and those will influence how well that melanoma responds to a BRAF inhibitor. Similarly, there are many cancers which we sequence and we don't find any mutations for which we have an available drug. And some tumor types have particularly low numbers of what we call targetable mutations. Um, many tumor types, mesothelioma, kidney cancer, for example, have large rates of mutations that inactivate genes. And that's a particularly difficult scenario to develop viable therapeutic agents for. So it was probably always a bit naive to imagine that we would would be in a completely different world. But I think that we are making progress. We're understanding which drugs work in which contexts much better, and that over time we will diversify our armamentarium for attacking cancers. Are there ethical challenges involved in what is essentially mass data gathering and analysis of genome sequences? There are really interesting ethical challenges, and these are challenges that we're going to have to wrestle with as we begin to think about aggregating data. The prize is really important here. You know, if we can work out ways to ethically share data across hospitals and across regions, across countries, 
then we will be able to aggregate that data and use it to learn and make predictions about future patients sitting in front of us in clinic. One of the most striking things that's emerged from the last decade of high-throughput cancer genome sequencing is just how diverse cancer is. You know, we recently did a study of 1,500 acute myeloid leukemias, and when we look at the patterns of genes that drive each one of those leukemias, we found more than a thousand different combinations of driver mutations that were responsible for the individual people's leukemias. If we want to predict for each of those patients what's going to happen to them when we give them drug X, Y, or Z, then we're really going to need to have a sort of knowledge bank of thousands of patients in whom we know what the genetics of their leukemia was and then what happened to them when we gave them a particular treatment so that we can make predictions for future patients. Now, aggregating and sharing that data in a way that respects patients' right to anonymity, that respects informed consent, that prevents misuse of the data, unintended sharing of the data, et cetera, et cetera. Those kind of challenges are very real ethical dilemmas for us. We need to solve them because I think that until we can do this kind of data sharing, we won't be able to harness the potential benefits of genome sequencing. We really need large-scale data to overcome the challenge of the diversity in cancer genomes that we see. So you spoke about working across countries. Is there another ethical challenge in ensuring patients' access to modern genomics across the world? There are challenges in the global access to genomic technologies. What is reassuring is that these technologies are becoming more and more accessible. They're also becoming cheaper and cheaper. The cost of genome sequencing just in the last decade has come down by several orders of magnitude and is now probably similar in cost to some of the high-content imaging methodologies. So they are becoming cheaper, and that is leading to more global access. And those trends will continue. The other challenge in many ways is not just generating the sequencing data, but then also analyzing it. These kind of technologies generate very data-rich outputs, and one needs high-performance computing to analyze that sort of data. What's also exciting is not only is the sort of global access to the sequencing technology improving, but also global access and solutions for computing at distance, so-called cloud computing, those kind of solutions are also becoming much more widely accessible. And so one can imagine a world in which the data analysis happens not in the local hospital, but in some more centralized or some distributed computing environment that happens very rapidly, allows very standardized analysis of the data that's robust and accurate, and then the data gets moved back to the hospital for the individual clinicians to use. So both of those things are moving quite rapidly at the moment, and I think portend a future in which genome sequencing is much more globally accessible than it is now. So finally, speaking of the future, what do you see as coming up next in genome sequencing for cancer therapy? What's happening? So what we're seeing at the moment are individual hospitals, groups of hospitals beginning to gather around, agreeing on ways of sequencing tumors, sharing data, beginning to understand what good practice looks like, develop common quality assurance programs, and so on. Those, I think, will continue to aggregate and to become more regional and eventually more national. 
In some countries in the world, um, England where I am, the Netherlands, Korea, there are the beginnings of national programs that are looking to systematically sequence large numbers of patients with cancers and link that data to treatments that those patients have had and then their clinical outcomes. And those similar sort of scale endeavors are beginning in the States as well. And I think that what will happen over time is that standards for describing the kind of data that emerges, providing useful feedback to clinicians and to patients about what the sequencing tells them about an individual person's tumor, and then aggregating that data so that we can continue to learn from it. Those kind of approaches will be what we're sort of focused on in the next five to 10 years, I think. Thank you, Dr. Campbell.